I was I was very happy in this cultural moment to uh, to take part to celebrate and to really feel activated uh, last night by um, watching a movie that I think is just a perfect, a, uh, a perfectly cathartic piece of cinema for this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yes. This what? group of young, this group of young people figuring out their lives growing up, deciding where they fit into the world and how they're going to shape it feels very, even though it was made 30 years ago, it takes place most likely somewhere around 30 years before when it was made. Huh. Uh, Do you really think that uh, many? I thought it was like more 20. like the 80s. Like No, it's like 20 years. It's like 20 years. It's supposed to be when he graduated from college, the director, and that's like 73. Okay. Um but I really think that Whit Stillman's Metropolitan is just the perfect movie for this moment. Well, what I think is really admirable about Metropolitan, uh, like you said, a movie about a bunch of wealthy uh, young people on the, in Manhattan figuring out their lives, is it? it's really saying Black Lives Matter, and they matter so much that we're not going to cheapen them by including them in a movie. <laughs> you know? Like, we don't want to... There's just... <laughs> You know, you it would just silly them to include them talking? in a film, you know. There is reference to the doorman. <laughs> I don't know if they actually, I don't know that they say the doorman is black, do they? I think you're just inferring that because he's a doorman. Is that what you're... <laughs> It's uh, definitely um, didn't feel like a movie from now in many, many, many ways. Yeah. And even when it came out, it wasn't really a movie from then, you know. I don't know it was. That's so interesting because when I first saw the movie, um, and we'll just say, uh, welcome to 30 Years Later. I am Ricky Camilleri. This is Chris Chafin. And we are talking about a movie that came out 30 years ago this week. There's a number of movies that came out this week. It was hard for us to choose, but we ended up choosing Whit Stillman Metropolitan because they're uh, as much as we would have loved to talk about some of the other movies. This is the movie that it felt like we were best suited these two uh, white men <laughs> to to talk about. That doesn't mean we don't stretch what we watch. I've seen uh, the other movies as well, and I like them a lot. But we are talking about Metropolitan. Uh, Whit Stillman's first film, yes. he was uh, in his 30s by the time that he made it. He graduated from college in 1973. He grew up a Park Avenue, Upper East Side, wealthy kid going to prep school. And this is a movie about a group of prep school graduates getting together, getting together over one Christmas break and talking about who they are, where they're going, and what they think of themselves And it takes place in a Manhattan not so long ago. This goes back to what we were just saying, Chris, in the sense that when I first saw the movie, I was in high school, maybe maybe college. 
I thought the movie took place when it was made. I yeah, me too. Movie- me too. I had no idea. I had no idea. Even I, I thought it was in the 80s. I didn't know it was supposed to be like 1973. That's so long ago. Yeah, when I was listening to an interview with him, uh, he was saying that the movie, that there's checkered cabs, which are from previous era of cabs, not from 1989. And there's a couple other things that they could afford to make it look like the late 60s, early 70s. To me, I was just like, these people just look, because they're just dressed in tuxedos, which I guess yeah, tuxedos is tuxedos and like like little like party dresses kind of things, you know. But it doesn't look like so old fashioned or anything. None of oh, I guess you know what they they reference the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Yes, but so you that know, part... that would just happen also with my friends at college. So like, it could have yeah. also been then, you know. But that movie was seventy two. Yeah, we're talking about Whit Stillman's Metropolitan, which came out August third. 1990, also movies that came out that week, Young Guns 2, DuckTales the movie, and Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, which is a wonderful film that I have watched recently, but we chose Metropolitan um, just because. When I was a freshman in college, I used to go to parties and I would say like, have you ever heard of Whit Stillman? (laughs) And if people said no, I'd be like, okay. And then I would like not talk to them uh, mostly because i didn't really know what else to talk about not because i was a snob should we uh roll the trailer yeah girl oh, i'm sorry did i like way delay that they're doomed what are you talking about downward social mobility they're bourgeois shut, shut, shut. playing strip poker with an exhibitionist somehow takes the challenge away and in love I mean, for them, men are either dates, potential dates, or date substitutes. Look, I find that dehumanizing. They're all so very metropolitan. I guess you could say it's extremely vulgar. I like it a lot. movie i love this movie too yeah like right from the op- i mean right from the opening credits like the font and the music i was like oh i felt so comforted i felt so like just relaxed and happy about what was about to happen to me like it just immediately puts you in this mindset of like oh like witty manhattanites you know well, no interesting about that is that like i feel like the 98 percent of movies about people like this I would despise. No, they're mostly awful. They're mostly awful. Including, yeah, right. including like most Woody Allen movies outside of well, his right. in the like in the seventies and eighties. Well, so I mean that's the thing to say about this movie, right? Is it's basically just it's you know, it's very heavily inspired by Woody Allen movies, but it's in a very different it's takes it to a different place, which I think is interesting, but it's also like very obviously just copying Woody Allen, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, the difference is that like the main character isn't trying to sleep with like a 13 year old or something, you know? <laughs> In fact, the main character is trying to stop the girl he likes from having sex. That's the plot of the movie, I think. Like... Yes. And the one sort of like the libertine characters in the movie, both Cynthia, who is yes. consistently referred to as a slut and and rick von sloniger uh von sloniger uh who is also like a libertine they are kind of uh viewed well rick is disturbing and sociopathic but cynthia is viewed 
is like kind of almost, almost sort of like dim-witted or like uh, uh, loose, amoral, right? Yeah, and she's always saying things like, well, why shouldn't I have sex with anyone I want to? I don't know, and that's it. You know, and then someone else talks for like five minutes straight. She's like, I think that's very reductive. <laughs> she has like one line. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Right. She's supposed to be a slut, but it's like, does she really do anything all that slutty? They're always they're always like kind of inferring that people are having three ways, but the way they talk about it makes it sound disgusting. <laughs> makes it sound like the most disgusting and vile thing you could possibly imagine. Like, do you know what running a train is? So how old are these characters? They're 22, right? Well, they're supposed to be just out of college, right? Yeah, so they're 22 years old. like 22, yeah. They're all in their parents' like massive Manhattan apartments on Park Avenue. Like so massive that like nine kids can hang out in the living room and smoke cigarettes and drink till like all hours of like four o'clock in the morning. And like the parents don't seem to care. Like, They're just in a different part of the house. You know, they don't really know what's happening. Right. Well, I don't know what kind of apartment is like that in Manhattan, but like where I grew up in Massachusetts, like you had to be in the basement and it had to be like a two story house. And the parents' bedroom was on the top floor. You have that many people like hanging out and drinking, even just talking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like two o'clock in the morning, a mom is coming out, no matter how old you are. I mean, like, guys. Time to go home. Yeah, in Florida, what we what we always had was one guy had his own apartment or house sometimes, but he was like you know seventeen and he like had a house, you know, or like his parents had not been home in like eight months or something, you know. It was just like, and that is where everybody hung out until the middle of the night every single night, but like in the yard or in the garage, even still. And this is Florida, right? Yeah, in Florida, yeah. Metropolitan is kind of actually kind of a hard movie to talk about, I think, because I just like it, and like yeah. it's just a nice movie about like these privileged uh, white people. I that it's a contradiction almost that I like it. I mean, this is definitely it's not one of the movies that I have like lines memorized necessarily. Um, really, I my favorite of his movies is probably Barcelona. Like that's the one I saw first, and I've seen that one the most, and I I like that one a lot. Um, but I think this one definitely has like some lines where you're like you know it's just so fucking ridiculous and it's so i I think what's so great about this movie is it comes from such a deranged singular point of view and it completely doesn't care that it's completely inaccessible and seeing it as like a young person it it just made me want to know everything that they were talking about like not that i necessarily did any like research based on it like i definitely did not do that but just like yeah you're talking about they're talking about boonwell at some point and they have this great line where she goes well, of course, Boonwell hates the bourgeois. He's a surrealist. It's part of the credo. And then, <laughs> and then uh, Nick goes, "Where do they get off?" <laughs> <laughs> like that's so fucking stupid. It's so stupid. Uh, and it was really—I don't know—I love it. I fucking love this movie. Um, it's a real uh, star-making performance for Chris Eigman. Chris Eigman, yeah, right, exactly. Eigman, which is surprising that he never became a bigger star. Like, he really only did the Stillman movies, and then he got some roles on, like, Gilmore Girls and some other roles here and there. But, I mean, maybe he never pursued it. 
but he it seems like he could have been a star and none, like none of he's the so actors good are... right he's he's such the whole movie is about him basically any scene that he's in he's like completely dominating you just want to hear him talk more everything he does is funny like i mean yeah the chris eichmann this of this period was like a major major influence on me as a human being like i was like i oh, love this guy movie. this is the coolest guy i've ever seen in my life and i want to be exactly like him do you think that chris eichmann eichmann I don't know that I'm saying it right, just to be clear. I really actually don't know. I think it's Eigenman, but do you think Eigenman. that he, do you think that he's the moral center of the movie? I mean No, I mean I guess that's supposed to be the main character, right? What's his name? Tom? Like, is Tom the moral center of the movie? No, I think I mean I think if like Audrey I mean, is the movie would probably say Audrey is, but I think it's actually Tom. Or not Tom, sorry. I think it's actually... Nick, because he's, like, enforcing norms of the society on everyone. But he also has, like, like within those norms, he has a very specific moral code, which is, like, protective, and also, uh, like, the whole speech that he gives to Tom about how these women are depending on you, right? And how, like, this is a much bigger deal for them than it is for us, right? This is a... they, They blossom much later... This is a much more important time for them than it is for me and you. It's actually like a fairly sensitive speech. And like, I guess one could say like, yeah, he's like setting women apart from the men, but it's a fairly honest, sensitive approach to these women in his life who he doesn't take advantage of. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, I totally agree with you. Like, I think that speech is really great. And I think like his whole campaign where he hates Von Sloniger and it's like, everybody keeps telling him like, Oh, he didn't actually do anything that bad, but he's just feels like he's a creep, you know? And he, I, I guess is right that he's a creep, you know, which I, we see because he's like sitting around in his boxers at some point. <laughs> like, I guess that means he's the world's biggest creep, but like, it's not like he necessarily did anything like that wrong, but he can just tell that he's bad and he wants everyone else to understand how, how bad that guy is. And also von Sonniger scatters underwear around the house, like which is like, such a weird thing that I don't get. That's such an old timey thing. That is a, like a 1973 thing. That's like a weird joke that would be in like Animal House, and you're like, I don't understand what this is about. <laughs> like, who who was the underwear for? Who sees it? Just it's to maintain his reputation, I guess. I mean, people see it in the movie. Tom find, finds it, Among you know. Who amongst who is like like if you were like you're 22 years old, you're going to your parents' uh, Hamptons home, uh, and you're like bringing girls there and you're scattering underwear around so the girls can see it so they think that you're having sex with lots of girls and they are are you like are you scattering underwear around so that like if anybody if your parents friends stop by to say hi there's women's underwear on there is that who you're trying to impress i mean I, i think you're just way overthinking it it's like you're presenting an image that you're a big time sex guy who is always doing sex like basically it's just happens around you all the time and you want everyone to understand that that's your whole deal is you're a big time sex guy. It's just like so crazy that underwear is just like 50 yards from you in the woods. Like that's just what happens around you. Like, do you think he shows up with women and he's like, Oh damn, whoops. Sorry. Let me get that and put it in his pocket kind of thing. Because that's not, I don't think that would turn a woman on, but this is again. So this is, 
I mean, we, yeah. So where to even begin with Metropolitan? But like, this is one of the weirdest things about the movie is it has this very uh, like weird attitude towards sex, I would say. <laughs> like, well, that, with like, someone's a conservative, he wrote for the American Spectator or he was an editor for the American Spectator before he became a filmmaker, before working in movies. Great, great. <laughs> Glad to hear that now after I've been watching these movies for 30 years. Like, <laughs> Um, but yeah, it has a really weird attitude for sex. Like I, I said, the plot of the movie is Tom trying to stop Audrey from having sex. And like, that is only kind of wrong. It's a, that kind of actually is the plot. The movie is obsessed with sex. And also it thinks sex is the most disgusting thing that could ever possibly happen between two people. It's the last act. The last act is like the sort of, or the climax of the movie is stopping Audrey from having sex with Rich, Rick von Sloniger. Who, right. Uh, is the the world's biggest creep? Side note: von, the guy who played von, plays von Sloniger was initially supposed to play Nick, and they shot scenes with him as Nick. Oh wow! But they thought that he was. They had both Chris Eigman and I think his name's Wayne Kemp. Uh, mm. Sounds like a serial killer. But uh, they had him. They had them both, and they weren't sure who was going to play who, or they were sure. But they shot scenes with Wayne Kemp with Kemp as uh, as as Nick, and he was just too much taller than than Tom, and they thought that it made him seem kind of evil, and so they <laughs> and brought Chris Eigman in as uh, as Nick. I mean, he's so good, dude. He's so good in this movie. I love him so much. Like, I um, yeah, I I really like Chris Eigman. I mean, this is why I'm not like a super successful entertainment journalist is like i went to this event uh before right before girls came on the air uh lena dunham hosted all these nights of movies at bam where she had curated them and she was introducing them and stuff and so she did uh, last days of disco which is like my least favorite with Stillman movie everyone talks about it but i i don't like it very much really um, and i don't like it i don't think it's very good it's just like a weird kind of like self self-referential like everybody's making these dumb cameos it's like i don't i don't think it's a very good movie do you mean of those three, or do you mean of like all of his movies? Oh, like of those, of his movies, yeah, of of those three movies. Right, but like damsels and and love and friendship. Do I like it more than those? Maybe. I mean, damsels, I don't really like that much. I think it's a little bit like fake seeming, like too. It's like too fake seeming. Yeah, I agree with damsels. I'm not. A, I'm not a big fan. Um. So I went to this event with Lena Dunham and Chris I Chris Eigeman and Whit Stillman were there. And at the time I was writing for, I don't know, Village Voice all the time and like and I was like after we after it came after it, after the event, I made sure to go up and introduce myself to Chris Eigeman and not to Lena Dunham. And then I tried like really hard to get my editors to let me publish an interview with Chris Eigeman and like not an interview with Lena Dunham. I was like, Don't you understand? We could get Eigeman. And by the way, he I had exchanged emails with him and he followed up with me a couple times. He was like, really? hey, is this interview gonna happen? Or like, what uh let's write a movie for him. I mean, I would love to. He's great. He's down. I mean he's in the first episode of Girls. Yeah. But I don't know if he is down. He directs now, and if you look at his IMDb, he hasn't acted in anything in like five years. Sounds like it's time to come back, brother. <laughs> Sounds like it's time to come back. There's this here there's this sequence of directors in the 90s right these male directors in the 90s who were very dialogue heavy who also for some reason become very self-referential by their like second and third movie 
where they start having cameos of characters from previous movies or yeah, actors right. doing something similar. And the joke is that you're watching an actor who played something similar do that thing again in the new movie. I'm talking about like Kevin Smith, Tarantino, and Whit Stillman kind of as well. Richard Linkletter, I mean, kind of, you know, in a certain way. Uh... Yeah, I, I would I would say that Linklater has, I mean, I like Quentin Tarantino and Whit Stillman a lot. I loathe Kevin Smith, but uh, I think that... Hey, hey, you ever hear that story he tells about the big spiders, about how there's going to be spider, they want to put a spider in the movie, and then he goes to see Wild Wild West and there's a spider in the movie? He's like, uh, like I'm on set. I'm talking to Bruce Willis, right? And me and Bruce are talking. <laughs> you know, Bruce kind of likes me because, the, uh, you know, I kind of know my shit, right? And Bruce, we're smoking cigarettes together. And it's like fucking guy from Die Hard, right? I'm talk, smoking cigarettes with a guy from fucking Die Hard. I hate that shit. Uh, anyway, um, I, I would say about Linklater, Linklater's use of that, is it has a bit more substance, right? It's like returning to the characters from before sunrise, but like 10 years later and like really adding on to the story. It's not like, here comes Jason Lee, (laughs) you know, or like now silent Bob and Jay have to go talk to blunt man and chronic creator from chasing. Oh, the guy from clerks isn't even supposed to be at the movie premiere, I guess. Right. Like exactly. He, it's, it's like, it's so sitcom-y, but because he, it's because like sitcom producers are just like, have a bit better taste than Kevin Smith. It hasn't like made it to the echelon of sitcom. So it's like that sense of humor, but in like an independent movie. Right. I'm not even supposed yeah, to be I feel like they're all, I mean, even Jim Jarmusch is like, is kind of like that to some degree, you know, where it's like, I mean, it's like the universe of people and, you know, players. Sure, actors return. Actors return, but not characters. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like Tarantino, Kevin Smith, and even Linklater. But Linklater is actually telling fully fleshed out, like, stories with the characters when they return. And when Stillman did it in Last Days, is it the same characters or is it just the same actors returning as cameos? I don't remember. No, it was it was the same characters, and it's interesting because, of course, like this, like Chris Eigeman and that other guy who we haven't talked about yet, who who was also the other star of Barcelona. They each played like several different characters, you know, in in the universe. So they had to like you know pick an iteration of them to be. And I forget which ones they were. If they were, I think they were the people from Metropolitan, not the people from Barcelona. But yeah, they were the same characters. Yeah. Yeah, that's an. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't particularly like that. No, I didn't either. I thought it was cheap. I mean, as someone who was like a huge fan of his movies, I wanted to see another one of his movies. I mean, for as much shit as he gets, like that is definitely something that like Wes Anderson would not do. Agree. Like, Mr. Fox shows up at the Hotel Budapest, you know, where these couple of brothers from the Darjeeling Limited are checking in. You know, like he doesn't do that kind of shit at all. Everything is its own universe and its own movie. And I, I like, I, that's what I was hoping for. Cause see, that's what he had done twice in a row. And then for the third time he was like, Oh, I don't know. You know, let's all just hang out and have fun. You know? Yeah. Um, when it comes to metropolitan, I do think that it is his best movie though. I mean, I know that you like Barcelona the most, but it is like the sort of purest distillment of his voice. Oh, yeah. And like, his, like aesthetic, yeah, 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 yeah. And like afterwards, 
it's unfortunate because I really like Wed Stillman and I always enjoy watching his movies, really no matter what movie it is, even the one even if I don't like it, I'm kinda I I enjoy it. Metropolitan to me does feel like almost like the final statement on his voice, even though it's the first. Like he, this was his one idea, and then he just had to keep making movies because now it was his job. <laughs> you well, know? You know, he has multiple ideas, but only one way of like attacking them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Wes I mean, Anderson can kind of feel the Wes Anderson can kind of feel the same way to me. It, like, uh, but I agree with you about the cami the the cameos. But out after Tenenbaums, to me, Wes Anderson, it's a delight to watch them. But I just am not particularly. I feel like I'm just kind of watching someone who's finding a, a, a different story for the same exact aesthetic and ideas. Well, yeah. I mean, it's that, yes, the, yes, that is exactly what you're watching. That's what I like about it. It's like a different, the same kind of aesthetic, but different stories and different kinds of universes. And like, yeah, that's, that's what I think is really fun about it. Audrey, I think has the biggest uh, arc in the movie. In the sense that, like, or it, it's like a surprise arc. Like, Tom has the big arc where he yeah. goes from liking Serena to liking Audrey. But Audrey, who she is in the final scene of the movie versus who she's been for everything prior to that is yeah. so much more self-assured and suddenly confident. And she's finally being, like, approached by the guy who you think that she's just been, like, or you've seen her pine over for the majority of the movie and find out that she pined over him even before that when she took the letters from 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 school but mm-hmm. she suddenly like i'm gonna go to paris and this is what i'm gonna do and if you want to come and hang out with me you can but she's just like so much more it's a wonderful moment i think that perfectly articulates the way men think about women sometimes and the way that women actually are which is like tom has this idea of her and what she's thinking and he's assumed all these things and she's kind of like no I'm fine. And this is what's going on. And it's okay. Right. And he's kind of like, Oh, I broke her heart. I hurt her. And like, you know, it's gotta be like this. And she's just actually much more self-possessed and confident than he gives her credit for up until that moment. Yeah. And it is interesting because like, you're totally right that in a, in a certain way, the whole movie is like Audrey's journey. Like she's in the first scene. Right. And she's in the last scene. But somehow you kind of forget that over the course of the movie because so much of it is about Tom and Nick and like, you know, where to get a good overcoat and like blah, blah, blah. But like, that is the story of the movie. And you're right. It is like, you know, and it's done in this kind of weird way. Like the climactic scene is they barge into um, Von Sloniger's like sex Hamptons place. And uh, yeah, he's only wearing his boxers and some girl, the Serena is like just in her bra, but Audrey's wearing a sweater. <laughs> and it's like, you're supposed to be like, oh, thank God. And Von Sloniger's mad at her. And you're like, oh, good. She like showed some character. Um, but then, but yeah, they have the scene, they it's have not the scene just on the beach, she, right? Yeah. It's not just that she showed some character. I guess that's what it is. But it's also, I mean, take away the conservative angle on sex in that moment, right? Like, there is. No okay, doubt. so take away like the thing it is about. And then, like. Well, it's also like what these guys assume about her. They assume that she has no agency. They assume that right. she needs yeah, protection. Right, right. But she doesn't actually need those right. things. Yeah, that's true. Like, she well, has it. She's self possessed and is, yeah, can do it everything well for herself. Yeah. And she goes with them at the end, not because she's saved by them, but because she just likes them better. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, they're, yeah, they're just nicer guys. <laughs> I mean, I, it's it's it, it does have a lot of emotional intelligence for a movie that it also seems so completely like divorced from reality in a certain way. Like, I definitely can identify, you know, liking someone and like not knowing what to do about it and being really awkward. Like that is also what the movie's about. You know, it's kind of, it's like almost like a teen movie in a certain way. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's absolutely a teen movie, I think. Yeah. Cause it's all just about like going to house parties and like who has a crush on who. And like, did you say the right thing to the person you have a crush on? And well, that leads us directly into what Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel said about the movie. It's so rare in the movies for characters to talk about themselves introspectively, to challenge their own beliefs. And yet at the same time, those are just teenagers. They're talking in, in elevated sociological terms, but they're saying the same things that teenagers all over America often say, which is, who are we? Who are our parents? Where are we headed? What's going to happen to us? And the interesting thing about this movie is the way that it takes those concerns and places them in this world. So it's both a study of that world on Park Avenue and a study of kids. Well, that sounds great, and, and I would have thought that I would really have enjoyed this picture, but I got all that in a probably about the first 20 minutes, which is they are kids, and they do use the elevated speech that kids, you know, kids will, you're right, it doesn't matter where, what class you're picking about, they have a style, but I got that. And then I got it again, and I got it for the whole run of the picture, and I didn't get much more than that. I, I, these are the kind of people also, and I tried, I tried to like them, but they're the kind of people that I know I would have walked away from if they were to party. I don't know if you would have, Gene, mm -hmm. because there's a character in the movie that would have been like that person that you would have been, the Tom Townsend character, the one with the uh, London Fog raincoat. He doesn't have the right navy blue raincoat. He's right. the one who says, I don't go to these parties. I politically disapprove of them. And the guy says, look, it's girls, it's free booze, it's free food, and you get to go to all the nice places, and it doesn't cost you anything. Yeah. And I think that would have appealed to you in the well, sense I know, that, I know. No, that's that the character. it's fun. It's fun, you see, in a way that has nothing to do with what it means. That's the character that, that would have been closest to me. You're quite uh, right. Except I would have said, you know, why don't you people all dial down a bit and just talk normal? Oh, come on. You're always talking about how you were in college. You stayed up all night we talked having straight. discussions just like the ones we just heard. No, we were much smarter oh, than well, the group I'm, there. Well, I'm looking forward much to it. Much smarter hope we find somebody that's smart enough to make a movie about the kind of person you were. I definitely agree with that in a certain way, because I do feel like for the first 30 minutes, it's fantastic. And then it does kind of start grading on you a little bit. I mean, as much as I love it, and I have seen this movie like a hundred times, um, definitely I think the, the delightful part of the movie is the very beginning. And then there, it kind of like starts to meander a little bit and it becomes a little repetitive. And you start you start thinking like, wait i don't know like some kind of like weird hateful things happen but that is kind of what i like about with stillman too is that it's not a very straightforward story and the characters are not like likable necessarily like they're kind of doing a lot of like bad and you know things that seem like wrong decisions but you can kind of identify with with why they're doing them well tom is like hurting audrey consistently well, exactly, right? He keeps he's fucking obsessed with uh, what's her name, Serena? No. But haven't you been in the situation, the, the position that Tom has been in before, where of like this is like my female friend, and like I don't have these feelings for her. Like all everybody wants me to go out with her because we're friends and she likes me, but like I don't, I like someone else, you know. Yes. It's so weird that kind of pressure, and it is. It happened to me a lot in high school, actually. Yes, and I. 
one time I didn't go out with the person. And then one time I did go out with the person and it was like, I don't know. It's just weird. You're like, can I no. just like, my that's your friend doesn't get to tell me who to go out with. Like I can decide who I want to go out with. That shit happened to me all the time. There were always these girls who were like, mm-hmm. I like you. I like you. I like you. And my friends were like, she likes you. You should get with it. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. Like there's this other girl over here that I like. And like, she likes me too. And there's also this other girl over here that likes me. And I want to get with her too. Like I'm young. I want to play the field, but it's cool that like all these girls like me, like a lot of girls like me, a lot of girls like me. Yeah, that is exactly what I was saying. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yo, what do you think holds up? You totally up got it. You got later? it. Yeah. What do you think holds up 30 years later? Metropolitan with Stillman. What do you got? No, I'm kidding. sorry. I'm stop. I'll stop. <laughs> no, no, do the rest of the show like that. Please. <laughs> Please try. Yo, much love to the fam. This is 30 Years Later with Ricky C, Chris C. Yo. <laughs> Yo, so Ricky. Um, Wait. So, what's the most '90s part of this movie? Is is that the question that you're asking me? I think the most '90s. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question. Ask me that question because I ask you it all the time. Hey, Ricky, what do you think the most '90s part of this movie is? Yo, could you try asking that question, but less like a bitch? Yo, okay. <laughs> mm, Ricky, mm, what was the most '90s part of this movie? Do you think? I don't want to bother you, but what? Oh my god, I feel so embarrassed to ask. But could you? Oh, if you had to pick a part that was the most '90s, what would it be? I would say uh, the most '90s part of this movie to me is how uh, dialogue-heavy it is. There's just this like oh, yeah. series of movies in the '90s driven by dialogue, like. And not in the, I mean, all movies were driven by dialogue for so long, but there's something about the way that they were driven uh, in the, in the 90s where they were self-referential. They were kind of talking about the fact that they were talking so much. Um, and there were also pop culture reference, referential as, as, as well. And they were honestly like less about plot than they were about people talking, right? Like yes, there were very- yes, 100%, yes. Clerks, Metropolitan- um, yeah, before I would sunrise, say, before sunset, before, before sunrise. Yeah. yeah, Days and Confused. I would even maybe say, like, put Reservoir Dogs in there, even though Reservoir Dogs has lots of twists and turns and who's who. But, like, Reservoir Dogs, the fun of it is listening to them talk. Yeah, even, exactly. Even when they're being insanely fucking racist. <laughs> <laughs> like, Hal Hartley movies. Like, isn't this, like, his whole yeah. thing? I mean, yeah, early Wes Anderson movies, right? I mean, like... yeah what they're about um and actually that's kind of my answer too is like i mean is this the first one of those movies i mean it came out in 1990 like i'm not saying they were all like directly influenced by them by this movie like i'm sure that is not true but if you just kind of look at it like is is it the first one of these movies is was he a you know like did this i don't know know the first like hal hartley's the unbelievable truth was like 88 or 89 Okay, yeah. Um, but I also think that Hal Hartley had a much more clear uh, style than like than 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 Stillman did. I mean, Stillman is very much just sort of like doing a master close-up medium for like every for every scene, right? Oh it's yeah, minimal- well, it's not like directed with a lot of flair, right? I mean, right. that's not really what it's about. I think even from Hal Hartley's first movie, you were kind of questioning, like, why is he directing this movie this way? Why is everybody <laughs> behaving, like, or performing in such a flat manner 
why are the shots like kind of like in, intensely four by three, four three and like and also flat. And I think um, uh, that's a little bit different than 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 Stillman. And Stillman, it's all about the dialogue. I, I mean, I guess also like Jim Jarmusch movies are kind of in this genre in a certain way. Like, would would you say? I mean, I I mean they're independent. I would say again, like there is a cinematic poetry to Jarmusch that is oh just well, like, definitely yeah, that is just like not existent in Stillman or Kevin Smith or or even I would say. Um, no, I mean, that's not true because with Linklater and like Slacker, you're getting these like dense philosophical discussions. Um, so it's like, it's, it's a little bit different. And I think a big part of Jarmusch too is like, it's like, he's like a hipster. Do you know what I mean? He's just like presenting to you the like cool New York culture of that moment, like in a film and perfectly expressing it in like the themes and attitude of a, of a movie. And that's so much of what he's doing, which is definitely not like something what Stillman is doing in this movie. Yeah, there's also the sense like with um, just to compare the two, like Metropolitan, extremely verbose, where and and down and 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 Jim Jarmusch, where they seem like dialogue heavy movies. If you watch them, they're silence heavy movies. Yeah, they're definitely. So much more focused on like what people don't talk about and what they're like, what they're not expressing. Um, especially, I mean, I think all throughout his career, it's like, how long can this scene be with as few words as possible? <laughs> yeah. 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 What about um, you? What was the most nineties thing about this movie for well, this you? This is what I was just saying. I was just said my whole thing about this. Yes, I agree. It's the same thing. It's, it's the way that it's, it's an indie movie in the way that became oh, such yeah. an identifiable thing in the nineties. But it's an early example, not the earliest example as we just talked about. But it's like, it's definitely in that genre. And it, 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 I, it, as opposed to a lot of the other movies where I've said the most 90s thing could have really been the most 80s thing, this is a very 90s thing about this Agreed. movie. The way it's like an, an, a talky indie movie. Yeah. Like that became such a thing over the next like seven or eight years, right? Yeah, like we referenced the the most successful of those people, but there were also so many oh more of these i mean and there was also other successful ones nicole hall of center and with walking and talking was like yeah. incredibly successful kicking and screaming kicking and screaming yeah definitely yeah i mean Noah chris, Baumbach Eichmann, is, chris Eichmann is in kicking and screaming i think isn't he yeah he is yeah um who do you think is uh i'm i'm, I'm curious who noah Baumbach is clearly the more successful with stillman <laughs> Yes, yes, definitely. But does that make him the lesser of the two or the better of the two? Because he's like artistically compromised because he is doing uh, some things that are commercial that he finds commercial as success for. Because to be as successful as Noah Baumbach, you have to play the game. Yes. (laughs) Right? You have to buy your PR bullshit so you can allow someone to spin it for you. You have to say, baby, we both have movies coming out this year. Let's get on the cover of Vanity Fair with our baby or some fucking shit, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, did you see Marriage Story? I mean, like, yeah, yeah. he seems like a piece of shit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he seemed like, but at the same time, he also seemed like the main character of his own piece of shit. Well, no, I mean, like, meta textually, you know? Like, what was my favorite part? My, what's my favorite part of Metropolitan? That's so hard to say. 
Um, I do think that my my favorite part is when we meet Rick von Sloniger for the first time and he comes in the room and he yells at Nick because he is just, he's not a very good actor in that scene. And, um, it's a, and he kind of takes you out of the movie, even though no one's really that great of an actor in the movie. Um, they're just all kind of swimming in the same world. Uh, but I really enjoy how much that actor is trying to relish playing a villain in, in that in that moment. And what's yeah. interesting is that you watch the deleted scenes on the Criterion of him playing Nick. He's better. He's a better, I mean, he's not better than Chris Eigman, but he's a better actor than he is as Rick von Sloniger. Like yeah, that's so sad. That's so sad. I'm so sorry. You know, it's just, that, it's just that Nick is such a better written character that I think it's easier for an actor to kind of just like the writing outshines the performance. Whereas like, the the writing for von Sloniger is that like he's just kind of a scumbag and it's there's not much to really play with there. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. apparently. According to Wood Stillman, he is the only actor who immediately following Metropolitan got a, like a crazy amount of work. Because Really? Got, yeah, because he got cast as the villain in a bunch of things. I guess he does seem like an asshole. Like you could yeah. cast him like he wants to shut down the ski academy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's so dumb. Well, congratulations to him. I guess it turns out he was the real winner out of everybody. What's uh what's your favorite part? I mean, yeah, I my note, which isn't super helpful, just says the dialogue. Like, I just like how fucking <laughs> stupid the dialogue is. I like all the fucking dumb jokes in this movie, and I like how they're like just dumb jokes for nerds. Like it's I like it's, that this movie's a talkie. <laughs> it's a talkie. I like how they're just they're saying all these crazy things to each other. You never heard it. Look, if you and your buddies were talking like this, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, of course. The dialogue right right dialogue. Up, right from the beginning is so much fun to listen to. Yeah, it's it's just and you don't even it's almost like you don't know who the characters are, you don't know what the plot is, but you're just the movie takes place in this eternal present where people are just making witty asides to each other, you know? There there is like a there is like a thin red line element to it where it's like all of the characters all of, like Outside of Audrey, I do think Audrey really pops. But the first time, the first maybe couple times I saw this movie, I may have had trouble telling characters apart. Yeah, it's impossible because they all just sound like Whit Stillman. Like they don't have any characterizations. They just are like are having one long conversation. Um, and it is interesting, actually, because right at the beginning of the movie, um, the actor whose name I'm forgetting, that's also in Barcelona, who also has a big part in this movie, the uh, religious -y one. Do you know who I mean? Yeah. Um, he has a line where he says like something like I was thinking to myself and really that is how you spend most of your living time is thinking to yourself and I do sort of think the movie is it's almost like one long internal monologue it's just like people uh, uh, you know someone arguing with themselves um, and I think there's I'm not saying that, that that's what you're supposed to be taking away from it but you can kind of get that because like you're saying there's no differentiation between the characters and they all are equally intelligent and they're all just like arguing different sides of things to each other. And it, it's hypnotic and it, but it's not necessarily like you're not watching a bunch of different people interact with each other. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I wonder like, what did you, what do you think about the character that shows up 
in the last act of the movie, the random guy at the bar and basically like says the point of the movie. Oh yeah. He's like one of my favorite parts of the movie also. This guy. I mean, I don't know. I actually had forgotten that was what I was going to say as one of my favorite scenes in the movie is they meet this guy who's like, I guess the aide with Stillman would have been at the time. He seems like a complete douchebag. Like maybe he's like a vice president at a bank or something, but he's just talking about how like unfulfilled he is and how mediocre he thinks he is. And he gives this great speech about like, you know, Oh, well the worst part about it is some people actually do become really successful and do all the things you wish you could have done. And you have to run into them everywhere. And I, I do everything I can to avoid seeing them, which I thought was, that was like the truest part of the movie. I really felt that really hard. <laughs> Well, I love when they walk outside after that conversation, they walk out of the bar and uh, Tom says to the other character who he was with, uh, he was really less pessimistic than you. And the other character, <laughs> says, the other character says, yeah, it seemed kind of fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, why? Did you think that was stupid? Did you think it was like t- hitting the nail on the head too hard or something? No, I loved it. I loved it. But I also felt like it is uh I loved it, but it was like a com- it's a common thing that happened in movies then that, and I think it's a testament sometimes to shooting on film. I hate to say it, like I know that sounds so st- stupid, because it's like what does that have to do with the story? But like there is something about like the capturing a moment on film that still sort of feels a bit more real to the eye than I think video does, even at its best. And when like you watch every like small indie movie that comes out now that's like about characters and relationships and a character out of nowhere appears in the last act to tell everybody like what ha- like you know what they've done wrong and what's and what's going on mm-hmm. and yes, of course, there's more context to metropolitan in the world but there's something about it that works in that movie where it just like does not work in so many things that i have seen well know? it's because like we we're saying the whole movie is set up where it's just like you don't even really know who the different characters are. It's just like people are talking and they're arguing with each other. And he sort of seems like he's on that level, but also he like has a little bit more life experience. So you're like, Oh yeah, what? Like, really? Like, do you actually know? Like, tell me something. Um, and it's, but also you're kind of like, well, I don't know that that guy might suck. Like, I don't know if he's, if he's actually right. He seems like he might also. Well, suck. because they all might suck. Right. And with Silman kind of I, in the commentary track, he said that he knew that, people were going to be primed to dislike these characters immediately. And yeah, Gene well, Siskel, of course. And Gene Siskel even says that in this thing where he's like, these are people that I would have walked away from. I would have hated them. And it's it like, seemed like so like, oh my God, like so wealthy and like p- pedantic, like small minded in a certain way. Yeah. Um, but also like obsessed with like trivia about, you know, Greek literature or something. It just seems like... It's it's like meeting a twenty five year old who's somehow is like a sixty eight year old British person, you know. It's like, but also like obsessed with themselves and how they're perceived in the world, right? Which is like a rarity yeah. when it comes to people that age. Like I don't remember leaving college and thinking about how I, like a blue collar kid who went to a liberal arts college, was going to be perceived <laughs> in in the world in society. Yeah. yeah. I wish that I had, I really wish that I had, but I definitely did not. Yeah. Well, of course there's a, there's a privilege to being able to think about that. Right. Right. Because you like have some options about what to do with yourself and you, you're not just like trying to pay rent in three weeks. And so like, 
yeah. whatever. I mean, I guess that is the thing about the movie is Tom is supposed to be like used to be rich and now he's not rich anymore, but he seems fine. The poor apartment that Tom lives in. I was like, that kind of looks like my apartment. <laughs> like f- fuck off. No, I well, think Tom's doing fine. Yeah. And it's also like Tom's apartment is like, that's a poor apartment for like 1990 or like 1970. Right. Yeah. But it's also that like he, I don't know. He he has a separate bedroom in a big apartment in New York City with his yeah. mother. You know, there's like anytime I've ever met somebody who like got to like leave college and then go back and live with their parents in the city, I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> you know, like you can stay there as much as it might suck to live with your family. You could stay there for four years and save all of the money that you're going to make at your twenty five. $28,000 a year yeah, fucking right. internship. Whereas like, I am going to be spending all of that on rent. Yeah. And, and then I'm going like massively into credit card debt. And like, yeah, yeah that is what happened to me. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like I do remember when they told me my, the first salary I was going to get in New York and I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with $24,000? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. These idiots are going to pay me $24,000. Was that a year, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I was like 28 for me, I think. And then I think by the time my job was over after two years, it went up to 30. Mm. I got the job I got after that. They gave me one time, they gave me a lecture about how I wasn't performing well enough. And I, because I had, they wanted to pay me 27, but I'd argued them up to 30. And they were like, plus, I mean, you're making $30,000 a year. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what do you think? It's been 30 years since this movie, uh, came out. What do you think this movie has grown out of? Oh, well, a lot of stuff you gotta say. I mean, for good and bad, right? They certainly don't make them like this anymore when it comes to, like, talky indie movies. They, this, they, does not exist. So that's, like, a whole thing of the past. Um, but then, you know, textually in the movie, maybe the, like, weird treatment of, because I know what you're saying, like, on a, the point of the movie is that Audrey has agency and they actually shouldn't need to be rescued. But at the same time, the bulk of the movie is obsessed with talking about her as if she does need to be rescued. So I, I know it kind of redeems itself in the last scene, but if you were to chop that off, it's like a solid 50 minutes of talking about like, like very odd sexual mores and treating women like they are, you know, automatons or something. It's, it's very, very weird. It's anti-sex. It's an anti-sex teen movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, most teen movies are anti-sex. Um, not the ones I like, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about the barely legal category. Am I right, yeah. I guess? All right. Somebody pass me another cigar. Um, <laughs> but I think that... I mean, it's kind of anti-sex, right? Because Nick sleeps with Cynthia and the others, I mean, they're, they're not like Nick sleeps with Cynthia. Sally's going out with this record producer. Who's clearly like a sleaze bag. Yeah. Right. Too, too old for her. And these guys think that they have to, like if the bulk of the movie is the stuff between uh, Tom and um, what's the character's name who initially doesn't like Tom, but then the two of them go out to save uh 
Um, this oh yeah, that's who I keep talking about. I forget what I forget what his character name is and what his actor name is. His real person name. <laughs> I'm looking it up. So that would be Taylor Nichols as Charlie right. Black. Taylor Nichols, yes. When Taylor Nichols as Charlie Black and Tom Townsend are talking about going out to uh, are talking about going out to save her, that is when the movie gets into this place where they're really talking about saving Audrey. But the punchline is that she could have she was fine. Right. Yes. Like she was around sleaze bags. But she knew that she was going to be around sleaze bags. She just wanted to go to a ha- like a house in the Hamptons. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I think in the end, it's a good movie. I'm not saying it's like a bad film, but I'm just it. It's so much of it is taken up with the kind of that kind of internal monologue about this very weird attitude towards women and sex, which I know it then tells you that that is incorrect, and I I do appreciate that, but. At the same time, it is a lot of the running time of the film is them coming from that point of view. Right. That is true. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Who, who, do you most, <laughs> who do you most see yourself as in this movie? Oh, of course, it's Nick. Of course, that's I mostly myself as Nick, you know. I mean, oh, if we're being on. honest, like probably Tom, probably Tom, yeah. but, you know. Come on, I'm, I'm the Nick. Oh, whatever, dude. I'm the Nick. I'm the Nick here. <laughs> Ricky's like aggressively positioning himself in our Zoom chat while he says this. I'm the real You're fine. You're what? fine. Who but who do I see myself as? I see myself as the Nick. Everyone thinks they're Nick, you know? Like he's the coolest one in the movie. I wanna go back for I wanna I wanna backtrack for a second because this reminded me when you asked me what my favorite part of the movie was. What I forgot to say, and what I think is my favorite part of the movie, is the way that Nick becomes the the, per, the character that Nick becomes. He's the asshole at first. He's the cynic. He seems kind of like he's antagonizing everybody, but then it turns out that he's right, and he's the realist, and he yeah. actually cares about all these people. And he's actually very sweet, and he yeah. doesn't. He wants them to be sweet too, and really nice to each other. Yes. And I like uh, that. That is kind of my my my. That is my favorite part of the movie. And yeah, I, I like that a lot too. Chris Eichmann could pull off. Well, I think that's what's so interesting and weird about this movie is it does have stuff like that, and it actually pulls it off like really well. Where it's like the complicated arc of the sarcastic best friend. Like, I don't know how often does that really work really well. But it, he becomes sort of like when you were saying the whole time he's like the moral center of the movie, and he's like you come to really sympathize with him by the end and everybody else seems kind of like a shallow jerk. And he's like, wants them to genuinely care for each other. Well, that's true. Like the shallow best friend in, in most teen movies or the shallow friend in most teen movies, the cynic will get their comeuppance, which he right. does. But when he gets his comeuppance, he was right. Yeah. And it's like, he looks like a fool, but at the same time, you feel so, you feel for him so much because you know that he's right. It's like a very interesting way to play a scene like that. And I think it's like super, super effective, right? Because, <laughs> and this is why I identified with this character like my entire life is because he seems like an asshole, but he's like, actually, he's like super cool and right. Yeah. Yeah. We are too. 
yeah, like both you and me are like we seem like we're total assholes, but actually we're totally right about everything, and we're total we're sweethearts. Really yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's how I see myself all the time. I'm always thinking in my head like, no, I'm a sweetheart. Stop running. Anyway, like, so that's Metropolitan. It's great to talk to you, Ricky. Thirty years later, Metropolitan. I mean, I gotta say, I think the movie holds up for me. I, I had a great time watching it, and uh, you know, it does meander and lose its way a little bit, but uh, on the whole, on the whole, it's such a such a great such a great movie to watch, and I really loved it. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,